Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. Excited to be with you this morning. Um, and we're, we're in a series. We're going uh, through the church calendar. Sorry, one of our projectors is giving us fits, and we haven't figured it out yet. So you're over here today. Um, but we're going through the church calendar. We're in the season of Lent. It's the third week of Lent. And we've talked a little bit, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked a little bit about the spiritual disciplines. These are things that for the most part, actually, we'll talk about one today that's an exception. But for the most part, these are things that Jesus himself did. So we do the spiritual disciplines. We practice what Jesus practiced because one of the ways to think about this is that's how we walk with God. <laughs> we do what Jesus did. And, and as, we, as, we, as we follow Jesus, as we imitate Jesus, we find ourselves walking with God in communion with the living God. Another reason, which we talk more about on other occasions, but there's a lot of stuff that we get up in our head, and we're trying to end this way this morning, that's why I'm going to say this, but, but there's stuff we know in our head, but it's hard sometimes for us to get it down into our heart, to live as if it's true. In fact, I don't know that we can really do that. And as we practice the spiritual disciplines, it's one of the ways that we surrender to God and allow the Holy Spirit to take what's up here and drive it deep into our hearts so we live as if it's true. That's where we're going to, I mean, it's spoiler alert, but that's where we're going to end. We're going to lean into forgiveness this morning at the end. I want us to live as if we, as if we are forgiven, because we are. <laughs> Amen, right? Well, I'm going to start, because uh, I've, I've challenged you during the season of Lent, I challenged some of you to fast. It's something the church has traditionally done. 40 days of fasting, 6 days of feasting, 46 days of Lent gets us to Easter, and one of you shared with me last week, and I know you, you love Jesus, and you're an excellent writer. You're in the room right now, but I won't point you out. But I, you shared with me that you were, you don't usually fast during Lent, but you did this year, and you shared, and I asked you to write it up. And so this is from one of our church family members. I'm no poster child for fasting. For much of my spiritual journey, the purpose of fasting has been obscure and confusing to me. I went through periods of time when I fasted so God would give me what I wanted. I felt like it probably worked like prayer on steroids. Sometimes I used fasting as a spiritual diet plan, multi-purpose to lose weight and please God. I even went through a period of time when I fasted from fasting because it had become a control issue for me, making me lose track of a God who was sovereign and loving, thinking outcome was dependent upon me. Some of you are laughing because you can relate, right? Before I could understand fasting, I had to grow in my understanding of prayer and why God ordained it. I began to understand that prayer and thus probably fasting too is part of God's beautiful plan, not something he needs from me. Prayer has more to do with me abiding with God than in me getting my own way. Prayer melds my heart to God in a way that allows me to pray Although often through, prayer, through tears, the prayer of Jesus in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Sometimes in the darkest times of my life, my simple prayer has been a repeated meditation of God is good and all he does is good. So while I have never before fasted for Lent, I decided to this year. I knew I was spending too much time on social media, so that became my giving up point. I would drastically reduce my social media and news gathering time online. I deleted my news app and decided to only look at news stories that were prayer points, like what's going on in Ukraine. I took my Facebook app off my phone screen and decided it would be 
a specific communication touch point only, not entertainment. So no more than a few minutes a day if there was something I wanted to say that would point to Jesus or share love with a specific person God brought to mind. Because I'm a rule follower, I wanted to be careful not to make it a legalistic point for me. I decided to replace the time that I often spent on social media with longer times in Bible reading, reading nonfiction Christian books, deeper prayer time, and listening more to Christian music. My desire for fasting was not to get something I wanted or to try to please God, but simply to draw nearer to the lover of my soul. What a blessing it has been in just a little over a week. It feels like God poured lighter fluid on the flame. It has been renewing and joyful. By increasing my abiding time and sweet communion with God, I am hearing from him with more frequency and intensity. It has been, in one word, beautiful. It's happening in our church. I actually got a stirring in our church. But here's one person who chose to do something they've never done before, really, or haven't done much, and to draw near to God, and God is drawing near to them. So I encourage you to continue to find ways to draw near to God. Now, we are in Lent, and so we are trying to journey with Jesus. We're trying to find that communion, to walk with Jesus, but I'm trying to remind you, and that's why these weeks are maybe a little bit more sobering than other weeks. We are drawing with Jesus in Lent as he is heading towards the cross. So maybe these messages are maybe a little bit more challenging than some of the other messages other weeks as we go through the Bible. There's all kinds of stuff we find in here, but in Lent we're focusing on death before life. And we're going to talk about a different discipline this morning. As I said, it's it's maybe the one that Jesus didn't do because it's confessing sin. (laughs) Jesus didn't confess sin because he never sinned. But uh, we are instructed very clearly that it is something we need to do for the health of our souls. We'll talk about that this morning. And our text is in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. I'm going to start in verses 1 to 5. We'll get to the parable in verse 6 a little later. Chapter 13, verse 1. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. I want, let me lay out the context, the situation, the setting a little bit before we get into what Jesus has to say here. Pilate murdered some people in the temple. What, what's going on? Well, it shouldn't surprise us. I mean, as we know from history, Pontius Pilate was not a gentle, merciful leader. Uh, he did many things to control the Jewish people. That was where he was responsible. Even we have a story from history where he one time used money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. And when the Jews rebelled, he crushed the rebellion brutally that resulted. He was a violent leader on many an occasion. And it seems that there is a group of Galilean worshipers. I mean, if you, he didn't just kill people for no reason, but this, God, this group of they must have done something in the temple, something that, was, that, that scared Pilate into thinking they were beginning a revolt or a rebellion. So they, they were doing something, maybe they were saying something or occupying, they were doing something that was disturbing the peace. So Pilate has them killed. In fact, it's almost like, Their blood is mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. So this news is, they're they're put to death by Roman source. So this news is being reported. Jesus is getting the news, but, but I don't think it's a neutral telling of the story. 
A lot of times events like these are communicated and people want to see the response from Jesus. And I think there's probably a couple things that are happening here. I think the main thing is, is the people sharing the news with Jesus are trying to figure, I mean, they're just trying to figure him out. What kind of Messiah is he going to be? He's kind of been ambiguous. He doesn't look like all the other Messiahs have been, but certainly he knows that our enemies are the Romans. And certainly he knows that the Roman occupation is, is, is wrong. And so we want to see, we want to see how is Jesus going to respond? Here's Pilate, here's the Romans squashing these Galilean worshipers in the temple. What is Jesus' reaction? So they're testing. Jesus is always being tested, isn't he? But there may be a little bit more going on too, even as I just tried to enter into what would be happening as this is being explained. And I, and I could imagine there's also some curiosity. There's people following Jesus. He's coming from Galilee and they're, they're wondering. We talked about this last week. They're wondering if Pilate's killing Galilean worshipers, what's he going to do to us? Jesus, are you still going to head to Jerusalem? We get to the end of chapter 13. That's what we talked about last week. A fair, the Pharisees are going to warn Jesus, don't, Herod Antipas is going to kill you. I mean, you got Herod Antipas, you got, you got Pilate, you got all these people. What are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus is like, I've got my purpose. I'm going to Jerusalem, what we say last week, to be crowned king, but my enthronement is going to come by being crucified on a cross. Jesus knows that, but he heads forward. So then we get to verses 2 through 5 here. Jesus, Jesus' response, and we'll talk about this because I, I love to look at what Jesus says and how he goes about saying it. A couple questions. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? That's what Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? <laughs> Interesting. Not at all, Jesus says. No way. And then he says this, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins. And turn to God. Verse 4, and what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, Jesus says. And then he says this, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. All right, let's talk a little bit about what is going on here. Now, I think the primary, the most immediate context that Jesus, and I talked a little bit about this last week, even as Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The primary immediate context, I think Jesus is still trying to warn those in Jerusalem that if you stay on the, on the trajectory, we'll talk a little bit on the trajectory, on the course, it is going to lead to judgment day. If you stay on the course you're on of trying to violently overthrow the Romans, then you're going to end up either killed by the Roman sword or what's going to happen in 40 years, in the year 70, when, when it's not Pilate, it'll be Titus. But when the Roman general Titus leads the Roman army, the legions, thousands upon thousands, to surround and siege Jerusalem, you'll either be killed by the sword or as their catapults launch over the walls, you'll be crushed as the buildings fall. <laughs> I think it's a real immediate, in the context of an immediate warning to Jerusalem. And if you don't change your ways and find the way of love and peace, then the same thing that happened to these people is going to happen to you. <laughs> but as with all, I think, biblical prophecy it transcends just Jerusalem. I still think there's plenty in what Jesus is saying that comes to us with great challenge, great warning. 
Jesus is always coming to us. No matter who you are or where you are in life, Jesus is always coming to us as a challenge. Jesus is constantly calling us to hear, he says, repent. But you could even just to rethink things. To reevaluate everything. We, we, are, we are living in the darkness. We've been formed in the darkness. And now the light of Jesus is shining. And we're being called to reevaluate everything in light of Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And I love how Jesus works. If you, if you read through the Gospels, if you pay attention, Jesus is always being confronted with a question, but, but not answering the question, almost giving another question to help people just reorient them. This is why he's always challenging you. Come and you think you need something. He's like, I'm not giving you that. I'm going to ask you for something else because this is more important for you right now. I mentioned this before, but there's a book out there. I think it's a great book. It's called Jesus is the Question. And in the book, the author says, I haven't counted, so I'm trusting the author. But in the four Gospels, Jesus asks 307 different questions. It's a lot of questions. And in the Gospels, he's only asked 183 questions, so he asks more questions than he's asked. But even of the 183 questions, there's a debate about it, but he only directly answers three to eight of them. (laughs) So 183 questions Jesus has asked, he only directly answers three to eight. In other words, Jesus, and usually what he's doing is he's asking another question to reorient, to get to a deeper truth or value. Or he's telling a parable to invite them into this story that's going to cause them, if they really enter the story, to reevaluate everything, to repent. It seems that for Jesus, just passing on information is not the goal. What he wants to do is transform us. He wants us to find a new place of understanding. And if you're paying attention to the verses I just read here, it seems that Jesus is doing something that he does on many an occasion. Whenever anyone comes to Jesus and asks him about someone else, he always says, well, let's talk about you first. Doesn't he? That's what he's doing here. That's what Jesus does all the time. What about these people? What about that? Ah, let's just talk about you. Let's focus on you. Let's start with you. One of the things that Jesus does throughout his ministry, and I've talked about this before, but he's constantly trying to help us reorient who the true enemy is we're fighting against. And you can even see it in the text here. The people are kind of thinking, Pilate's the enemy? Rome is the enemy? There's always some group of those people, right? It's always us versus them, and there's some them over there, and they're asking about the them. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The true enemy is not them. It's not those people. It's the Satan. It's the accuser. It's the one who maliciously casts deceit and lies and blame, which is what you're doing. You're playing the blame game. He's the true enemy that we should be fighting. Not those people, but but the Satan in our own personal sin. That's what we should be focusing on. Now, we could talk a bit about Satan and blame and accusation. I, I have done that on other occasions. I want to focus more on sin this morning. But I, I do want to point this out because I, because I think Jesus is pretty clear on this. Jesus is really kind of, he's not, let me say that he's not into blame theology. 
In other words, all kinds of catastrophes come and go, right? Tsunamis, earthquakes, famines, buildings fall. And when any kind of catastrophe like that happens, I know you'll hear somebody somewhere saying those people got what they deserved. They, they, was, they, they were worse sinners than other, And God, they, they got what they deserved. And Jesus is kind of saying, in these, no, 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 no. They weren't worse sinners than other people. Why don't you worry about you? And actually, you know, oftentimes we hear the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, which to a degree is, is okay, but, but I find myself much more comfortable. I think it's more in line with this text. I think you'll be at a better place of love if you can kind of adjust that and, and kind of adopt a posture of love the sinner, but hate your own sin. You know what Jesus is saying here? Yeah, love the sin, hate your own sin. You, just worry, you worry about you. Blame, accusation, that's, that's the work of the real enemy. Don't get caught up in that. You worry about you. Jesus' twist here is for you and I to take responsibility for ourselves and for our sin. So this morning, rather than focusing on the Satan, I want to focus on the other enemy, sin. The Bible talks a lot about sin, uses all kinds of images and metaphors and way of thinking about what is sin, Sin is a missing of the mark, a spoiling of the goods, a staining of the garments, a wandering from the path, a fragmenting of the whole. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. It's a perversion, a pollution, and a disintegration. In the biblical story, even when sin is depressingly familiar, it is never normal. It's never normal. It's disorder and disobedience. It's faithlessness and lawlessness and godlessness. It is both overstepping the line and a failure to reach the line. It is both transgression and shortcoming. And maybe the biggest biblical idea about sin is that sin is an anomaly, an intruder, a notorious gate crasher. It does not belong to God's world but somehow it has gotten in. It has dug in and it burrows deeper when we try to remove it in our own strength. The stubborn and persistent feature of human sin can make it look as if it has a life of its own. Often the biblical authors will talk about sin as if it has a life of its own. Because in many ways sin is a parasite. It's an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. It's not God's heart. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is trying to help us get healthy. And here Jesus is calling us to take responsibility for our own sins. And we begin to do that by confessing our sins. To confess our sin means to own up to the fact that our behavior or even our thoughts wasn't just the result of bad parenting, poor genes, jealous siblings, or a chemical imbalance from too many Twinkies. Any or all of those factors may be involved. Human behavior is a complex thing, but confession means saying that somewhere in the mix was a choice. And the choice was made by you or by me, and it does not need to be excused, explained, or even understood. It needs to be confessed so that God can forgive it. (laughs) 
As with all spiritual disciplines, confession is not primarily something God has us do because he needs us to do it. God is not clutching tightly to his mercy as if we have to try to pry it from his fingers like a child's last cookie. No, we need to confess because it's 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 the process, it's the way that God walks us into forgiveness. It's the way that we're healed and changed and transformed. It's how we allow ourselves to receive the healing forgiveness and grace of God. And as we confess our sins, I do think at least, probably more, but at least two things happen. If you can, if you can confess real, if you can take responsibility, stop blaming and accusing others, and you just take responsibility yourself. You repent. You change course. You change the trajectory of your life. It'll free you from guilt. It'll liberate you from shame. It'll overwhelm fear in your life. All the chains, I mean, that's a great metaphor, right? Sin like holds you in bondage and you're in change. And as you can confess your sins, it's one of the ways that you're set free. You name the sin. It gives you a chance to have some kind of power over it with God. It's really important. And as you name the, the sin, what has been hidden in the dark is finally brought into the light of Jesus, where we can reevaluate, rethink, reconsider all things. We can repent. What's in the dark is brought into the light, and, and, and as you do that, this will always happen. What seems so precious in the dark, as you bring it into the light, you're like, that's so ugly. Why have I given so much of my life, my attention, my time, my energy, my thoughts to this? This is ugly. And Jesus says, now you see. Now you can repent. Now you can head towards what is beautiful. <laughs> so how do we know when and what to confess? Well, on one level, I think it's important to confess every day. At the very end of our sermon, we're going to pray a prayer that I pray pretty much every day. I confess sin every single day. But on another level, it's helpful sometimes to respond to these moments where the Holy Spirit is trying to help us. The Holy Spirit is trying to convict us, trying to open our eyes, trying to show us what we've been blind to. And sometimes it comes about by a certain kind of feeling, a certain kind of a, a sense, maybe even the voice of the Holy Spirit in your head. And I'll illustrate this. I had a, a friend, a pastor who was, I was working with. He was preaching a Sunday. He used this illustration. It's kind of a horrifying illustration, but it gets to the point. He said in his early, maybe his first or second year, he's a really, really, really young pastor. Someone in his church had a lake home and had invited him and maybe some of the staff to spend the day at the lake home. And so he walks into this beautiful house. He's never been in it before. He's a young pastor. He's super excited. And there's this huge picture window, this giant glass window that looks out over the lake. Just beautiful. Just excited to spend the day there. But there's also a fireplace and a mantle and a gun above the fire. So in his immaturity, he grabs the gun. Don't ever do this. He grabs the gun. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know. And he points it at the window and he pulls the trigger. And to his horror, it was loaded. I mean, you can just imagine what could happen. But as that gun goes off and the glass shatters all over the place, he has two things run through his mind. I remember him telling a story. I just remember thinking, that is, that is exactly what I hear when the Holy Spirit's convicting me. I should have known better, and I can't fix this. He looked at all the broken pieces of glass on the ground. I can't glue this back together, and I don't even have the money to pay for this. I should have known better, and I can't fix this. If you ever feel that, it's time to confess some sin. 
Now, sometimes I think the Holy Spirit begins to convict. You start to see the results of your sin. You see a relationship breaking down. Something's going on, but you don't know what the root is. And you, again, you need the Holy Spirit's help. You need his guidance. You need him to show you uh, where, where the root causes. I actually came across this story this week as well. That's funny. It's a story about a guy named Charles Steinmetz. He was a genius of an electrical engineer for General Electric in the early part of the 20th century. On one occasion after his retirement, when the other engineers around GE were baffled by the breakdown of a complex of machines, they finally asked Steinmetz to come back to see if he could pinpoint the problem. Steinmetz spent several minutes walking around the machines and then took a piece of chalk out of his pocket and made a cross mark on one particular piece of one particular machine. To their amazement, when the engineers disassembled that part of that machine, it turned out to be the precise location of the breakdown. A few days later, the engineers received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, a staggering sum in those days. This seemed exorbitant, so they returned it to him with a request that he itemize it. After a few more days, they received a second itemized bill, making one cross mark with chalk, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. The point is, often you and I need help to know where to place the mark. And as we confess our sins... It begins that journey of us placing ourselves under the protection, the mercy, the forgiveness of God, but then asking him to put the cross mark on the right spot. As you begin to recognize your sin, as you, and sometimes it takes community, sometimes it takes conversation, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage, but as you begin to recognize your sin and you begin to get more honest about it, Again, what is in the darkness is brought out into the light and you see how ugly it is. I mean, it's really, if, this is the beauty of walking with Jesus. Because right now you think, I mean, all of us do. We all have sin that we need to be cleansed from. And we think it's so important and so necessary and so beautiful. But this is why repenting with Jesus, because as that light shines, we see how ugly it is. I don't want that anymore. You think repenting is going to be the hardest. Honestly, if you let Jesus, it's going to be easy because Jesus will show you how ugly it is and what it's doing in your life. And then you'll want his freedom. Begin to confess. Begin to take responsibility for your own selfishness. Stop blaming others. Stop blaming your past. Take responsibility for your own sin, for your own desire to love yourself more than you love your neighbor. To love being entertained more than you love God. Uh, To stop using your neighbor to to try to get yourself to a better place. Own. Take responsibility. I know it's not easy. We don't like to do it. But as you do, you you will find freedom and liberation. And you will begin to walk deeper into the abundant life that Jesus Christ offers. As you recognize something today, God will help you work through it, and you may recognize something tomorrow. I told you I confess my sin every day. I'm not kidding. I do. I confess the things I've done and the things I've left undone because I think both are sins. Jesus says to repent here, to change your course, to alter your trajectory. 
Because one way of thinking about this is once you put yourself on a certain trajectory, at some point you're going to arrive at the consequences. Whether they're good, abundant life in Christ, or whether they're not so good, rejection and rebellion against God. And as you walk through that trajectory and arrive at the consequences, you could call that judgment day, couldn't you? When you arrive at the consequences, that's judgment day. Judgment day in very, in very many ways is an evaluation. Whatever has been hidden is coming to light. And for many of us, we're headed on a trajectory and, and where we're going has been obscured from us. And judgment day is going to bring all this out into the open and we're going to have to really be honest, this is the course I've been on. This is where my trajectory has always led. Because if we go against the grain of the universe, which God is love and he has created this world out of love. So the grain of the universe is love. If we go against the grain of the universe, we're going to get shard. We're going to experience destruction on many levels. We're going to suffer. And that's what Jesus is saying to Jerusalem. If you stay on this course, it's going to come back to you. If you're going to try to violently overthrow Jerusalem the way all the other kingdoms have come... You're going to get what always happens. But if you come into my kingdom in a new way, a radically different way, Jesus' kingdom comes, again, not by conquering the Romans, but by Jesus going to the cross, actually under the violence of the Romans, which is crazy, but that's how the kingdom comes. Jesus is giving us this warning. And so you and I need to ask Jesus to reveal the things in our lives that will lead us to destruction. If we're on a bad path, don't you want to be redirected? (laughs) Now, Jesus will redirect you. I believe if you pray the prayer, show me. Show me my sins. Cleanse me. If I'm on the wrong path, show me. I believe he'll show us. But you have to remember that the path Jesus is going to guide you to is going to be a narrow road. And few people are going to choose it. It's not the easiest. It's not the most comfortable. It's rarely the most efficient path. But it's the path, Jesus says, that doesn't lead. The the broad road, Jesus literally says, leads to destruction. It's the narrow road that leads to life. But Jesus wants to show you that road. And I'm going to go to this parable now because because confessing our sins is really important. But I also want you to see that the grace is... Christians cannot talk about sin without talking about grace and forgiveness and mercy, right? That's the good news. And so Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9, we get a parable from Jesus. And I always like to say parables are tricky. Even this parable is a little tricky. I, I read my three favorite authors on the parables, and they all three gave me a different way of teaching this. I'm like, ah, oh, I always like, what do I do? So I always like to say when I teach a parable, I'll teach it with humility, with how I understand it today, but I, maybe I'll teach it different in five years because we're always learning. I mean, Jesus taught parables intentionally to make us wrestle. It's part of how we learn. He didn't just spoon feed us, right? So Luke 13, verse 6, Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. Jesus cares about fruit. And I think we can say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's Galatians 5, 22. You can read those later. But that's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is that the kind of fruit we're seeing? But this man was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig, no fruit, cut it down. 
I thought a lot about this. It's just taking up space in the garden. Don't just take up space. I think, actually, I think a lot of what our culture is doing is trying to just numb us, comfort us, entertain us, so we just take up space on the couch. Don't do that. Don't just take up space in the garden. You were created for so much more. You were created for life. You were created to bear fruit. God wants to partner with you, to participate with you as he brings his kingdom in our midst. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. And the gardener answered, verse 8, Sir, give it one more chance. Here's your grace. Give a little bit more time. Give it one more chance. Leave it another year. And I want you to hear this, because for me, this was, the, this was the best good news in this text this morning. Because if, if, I, I was reading, the, the, this time around, again, give me permission to teach it differently next time, but this time around, I was reading Jesus as the gardener. He shows up as the gardener and and resurrected Jesus with Mary in the Easter accounts. I was reading this as the gardener. And if so, Jesus says, I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. It's good news. Jesus wants that. You, you say, I got, I got stuff. I got to repent. I'm not bearing fruit. I'm just taking up space. And the, Jesus says, I'm going to give you special attention. Will you respond? Will you let Jesus, will you respond to the attention? He wants to nourish you. He wants to give you fertility. He wants to give you what you need to grow. He wants to provide what you need. Will you let him? Because this comes with both invitation and warning. I told you, the kingdom always comes with blessing or woe. If you don't like the way the world is and you're hungry for the kingdom of, com- of God to come, then, then Jesus comes to you with great blessing. But if you don't want Jesus to mess with your world, then he comes with great woe because he's always coming to change things. So you can hear this with, with joy and blessing or you can hear this with woe and warning and judgment. Jesus says, if we get figs next year, great. But if not, cut it down. That's what Jesus says. It's pretty strong, but it's what he says. So again, I think the immediate context is giving Israel, and particularly Jerusalem and the temple, even the ruling priests, one more chance. They have one more opportunity to respond and repent and change their ways before they're overrun by Rome. Grace is is, is offered, it's free, it's abounding, it's beautiful, but judgment does not evaporate as a result. The parable is directed to Jerusalem, but it still transcends. And I was thinking about this, because it's pretty timely for me to think through this. If you think about it, if Jesus is saying, give it one more year, but it's really going to be 40 years, the parable is one year, but in real life it plays out 40 years. I was just thinking about that. I'm 43 probably have about 40 more years, right? God willing, about 40 more years. What am I going to do with that? Am I, am I just going to take up space in the garden or am I going to respond? Am I going to bear fruit? What am I going to do with these 40 years? Am I going to be on a trajectory that leads me into life? But we say 40 years, but we're not guaranteed 40 years. Some of you have heard me say this recently because it's really struck me, but when my dad was my age right now, right now, 43, right now, we were discovering that he had cancer. Cancer that he would not overcome that would eventually take his life in less than a year. So you and I, maybe we have 40 years, maybe we have less than a year. We don't know. We know at some point we're heading towards Judgment Day where it will all be revealed. Will we, will we be standing in Christ? We'll talk about him forgiving our sin and taking our place or will we be just un- unknowing what to say before the Father? 
it seems to be that Jesus is saying a year. A year is enough time. to whatever, whatever time we have left, it's enough time to change. That's what Jesus is saying. A year is enough time. It's not forever. It's enough time for you and I to repent, to, to confess our sin. Because the end is coming for us all. It's sobering, but it's true. But Jesus does not leave you on your own to figure this out for yourself. He's the gardener. He says he's going to provide. He's going to give you special attention. A gardener's work is earthy and intimate. Gardeners have their hands in the dirt and gardeners handle living things with living hands. In other words, Jesus is not afraid to get his hands dirty. Jesus, you're saying, I'm too messy right now. No, Jesus is not afraid. He wants to get in there. He wants to clean you up. You've got to let him. You've got to be honest. This is just where I'm at. Okay, Jesus doesn't meet you where you should be. He meets you where you are. Let him get into your life. It might get messy. He might shake things up, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to work in such a way that it's going to bear fruit, fruit a hundredfold. You're going to know abundant life. Jesus is a gardener with a good heart and a green thumb. And your life is not so messed up that he can't nurture you into a flourishing life in the garden. Because there is no other God that loves and heals like this God. There is no other God that says, I know you've made a mess of your life, but actually I love you so much that I've dealt with all of it. There is no other God that takes death and brings out of it new life. The false gods and goddesses that our society worships offer you inner peace, but they fail to deliver the goods. There is only one God who loves and forgives and heals, and this God is found in the person of Jesus. And you and I are transformed by saying yes again and again to Christ's self-giving, poured-out, redemptive love. We receive it and are to be formed in it. So we're going to end. We're going to confess our sins in just a second. But I, I was even having a conversation with somebody in the last two weeks. And it's kind of how I started. This is how I want you to end. We are on our way to the cross. And as, if you're newer to Christianity, you're new to Crossview, how do you become a Christian? Maybe you're, how do I become a Christian? It all begins with confessing your sin. <laughs> you confess your sin. And it begins in believing and trusting that Jesus, God in human flesh, went to the cross for you and for me. That you and I, apart from Jesus, would stand before God, guilty and ashamed. But because of God's love, Jesus takes your place, and he takes my place. There is a real debt that our sin incurs, but Jesus pays it all. He pays it in full, and he thinks you're worth it. I've said this before, but value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay. Jesus pays his whole life for you and for me. No coupons and no bargain hunting. Jesus pays. He takes our place. And I want you, if, but, but here's the thing. I know, here's what I know. I know that some of, maybe some of you are hearing it for the first time. And if you are, when we pray, confess your sin. And if you really believe that Christ died on the cross and rose again, and he is your Lord and Savior, welcome into the kingdom. I'd love to talk to you. And I've said, if I've said things about Judgment Day and it scares you and you want to talk after the service, I'll be around. I'm not hard to get a hold of. I'd love to talk to you. But I know that m- probably most of you here or online know in your head that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins, but you don't live like it. You're still living in shame and you're still carrying around guilt. And Jesus is like, just let, just let me heal you. Just believe, I forgive you. Just would you confess your sin? If you confess your sin, just allow my forgiveness to flood your heart. 
You don't have to be in bondage anymore. And why does Jesus want to? Because he knows if you're wallowing in shame and guilt, you're just taking up space in the garden. How are you going to bring the kingdom if you're not living it? Jesus says, no, let me, let me set you free. Let me forgive your sins. Let me overwhelm your shame with love. Let me compete. I love you. I've made you worthy. And once you accept that and receive that and live into it, now you're free. And now you can share the abundance of the kingdom with those around you. Isn't that good news? That's what you're invited into. So let's begin with confession. We'll pray this together. And then I'll pray a little bit over us. The worship team's going to come up while we pray this. If you'd join me. Most merciful God, you can pray with me, Alan, ready? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus, I do want to just pray over all of us right now. We've confessed our sins, we want to be Christians. Yes, we need, to, we need to take responsibility for our sins. And I know it's hard for some of us, but we just, we just tried. And we're taking steps in that direction. Trying to be sincere here, Jesus. But now we want to live as Christians. We've been forgiven. Holy Spirit, for those of us who struggle to believe, we know that you could forgive others, but we struggle to believe that you could forgive us. We need you to stir. We need you to move. We need you to take these things in our heads and drive them deep into our hearts. I mean, some of us even need to, we need to experience you sometimes, even just even in our minds to see the shackles just falling of shame and guilt. Or maybe, maybe we've been on this path and the clear trajectory is warning and doom. And now, right now, even as I'm praying, we, we see this path that's filled with darkness and, we get, and now all of a sudden you just come along and you shift our head to the left and now we see a new path we haven't seen and it's filled with light. The, the path we've been walking has been ugly and painful. And now you want to lead us to another path that will also involve pain, but it will be a redemptive pain, not destructive, but it will lead to life and abundance. It will lead to resurrection. Jesus, we need to believe you. We say you forgive sins. Let us live it. And then let's pass it on. Oh my goodness, if we understood what we've been forgiven, how could we not share that with others? (laughs) Those around us who are living in guilt and shame. We could be the ones to tell them that they could be set free too. So Jesus, we want to just say thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross and forgiving our sins. May we not cheapen that gift, but may we let it be all that it is. In your name that we pray. Amen.